Today is Wednesday, December the 13th, 2023. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? We have been bringing computer industry news, hardware and software reviews, guest interviews, and news of user group meetings for the past 40 years. The Personal Computer Show is a three-time winner of the prestigious National Computer Press Awards. The Personal Computer Show had for many years been a call-in talk show. The pandemic-causing studio lockdown has altered our format. The listener call-in format enabled us to know what technology issues were on the minds of the listeners. Our only advocacies are consumerism and the First Amendment. I welcome you, the listeners, to provide feedback as to what you want to hear. Address your suggestions to hank at pcradioshow.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. That's www.prn.live. That's L-I-V-E. Streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Me data breach. The consumer DNA harvesting king exposed 6.9 million people's data. Earlier this week, 23andMe admitted that an October hack was dramatically worse than the company's initially admitted, affecting 6.9 million people, not the 14,000 at first reported. 23andMe followed up with an early Christmas present for users, a term of service update that would force people to give up the right to sue the company. The stolen data includes full names, genetic information, and more, but despite the sensitivity of the information, some consumers responded with a shrug. What are they going to do? Clone me? Hackers probably won't use your DNA information to make you a lab-grown baby brother, but experts agree this hack is a catastrophe. 23andMe sued after hacker claims massive data breach impacting Ashkenazi Jews. The truth is that none of us fully know the implications of this breach today, only the certainty that it will grow worse over time. The ability to weaponize DNA data will only grow more acute as computers grow more powerful. From our health profiles to our family trees to far subtler details of of our biology, this hack could potentially reveal so much. According to a 23andMe spokesperson, hackers stole data including people's names, birth year, relationship labels, family name, and location. An additional 1.4 million people who opted in to DNA Relatives also had their family tree profile information accessed. The worst, however, was the genetic information. Not only did hackers steal information about the percentage of DNA users shared with relatives, but 23andMe also leaked the ancestry reports and matching DNA segments, specifically where on their chromosomes they and their relatives had matching DNA. It seems this data is already up for sale. Wired, the magazine, reported in October that a user had advertised stolen 23andMe data on a well-known 
hacking forum around the time of the data breach. The user published the alleged data of 1 million users of Jewish Ashkenazi descent and 100,000 Chinese, 23andMe users as proof, asking for $1 to $10 per person in the data set. In general, companies have a legal obligation to protect their customers from data breaches. The 23andMe hack could expose the company to lawsuits, but its legal team issued a quick update to prevent that. 23andMe did not immediately respond to a request for comment. The company published a terms of service update last week, coincidentally, around the time it notified the Securities and Exchange Commission of its hacking debacle. The policy update forces users into a binding arbitration, which is a means to resolve disputes outside of court, as first reported by Stack Diary. 23andMe specifically prohibits a class action lawsuit against the company unless each person opts out of the arbitration. If you're an affected person, you can opt out by emailing arbitrationopout at 23andMe.com within 30 days, meaning the deadline is December the 30th. This detail is tucked at the bottom of the fifth section for its updated terms of service. For many, it's hard to grasp exactly why it matters that all this data is floating around on the internet. Hacks and breaches happen all the time, not to mention the trillions of data points companies like Google and Meta hoover up through more legitimate means. The problem, experts say, is that you really feel the consequences directly. Your personal information is used in complicated and obscure ways for all kinds of purposes behind closed doors. It has dramatic effects on your life. You just never know what data is responsible for any particular dilemma. Zooming out to the larger system of commercial profiling, it really does impact opportunity loss sometimes. The data that's collected from you determines what you are or aren't offered. That can be something innocuous like which target ads you see and what email blasts you get, but it also enables discrimination. In the past, consumer data has been used to exclude certain demographics from job opportunities or vacant apartments. The personal information flying around the internet gets used in hiring decisions and credit applications. Insurance companies even use it to set premiums. And of course, the more detailed information criminals can dig up, the more likely you are to fall victim to identity theft. Genetic information might seem disconnected from these problems, but they're not. You can't change your genetic information, so it's sensitive in and of itself. But it can also be used to make inferences about other health information, such as a diagnosis or medical family history. There's a serious risk of that becoming part of the profiling that happens in the broader ecosystem. And that only factors in the way we know DNA information can be used today. Gene science is a rapidly developing field. There's no telling what this information could reveal in the future. Privacy and surveillance are heavily contextual, and as new genetic analysis, targeting, and surveillance technologies are developed, the context around genetic data privacy and surveillance will greatly change in ways that many people now cannot foresee. 23andMe stopped short of abdicating its responsibility altogether, but its public statements on the hack have an air of victim-blaming. A spokesperson said the data breach resulted from people recycling passwords they had used on other accounts. 
Apparently, hackers use passwords that leak elsewhere to break into 14,000 people's accounts, a dead simple security breach known as credential stuffing. Because 23andMe is designed as a data harvesting system that pressures people to share their data with everyone from other users to, to the company's partners in the pharmaceutical industry, the hackers were able to use these 14,000 compromised accounts to steal information about millions of other people on the platform. Reusing password is asking for trouble. But security professionals understand that bad password practices are guaranteed. According to the experts, the 23andMe hack was easily preventable. You know, with all that cord cutting, zombie TV has come to cable TV channels. Many of the most popular channels have largely ditched original drama and comedies, morphing into vessels for endless reruns. What a difference a few years has made. Viewership is way down. Many of the most popular channels have quickly morphed into zombie versions of their former selves. Networks that were once rich with original scripted programming are now vessels for endless marathons of reruns, along with occasional reality shows and live sports. Advertisers have begun to pull money from cable at high rates, and leaders at cable providers have started to question what their consumers are paying for. In a dispute with Disney this year, executives who oversee the Spectrum Cable Service said media companies were letting their cable programming house burn to the ground. The media companies that own the channels are in a bind. The so-called cable bundle is enormously profitable for media companies, and more than 100 million households subscribe at the peak. But subscribers are rapidly declining as people migrate towards streaming. Now, roughly 70 million households subscribe to cable. As a result, most media companies are pulling resources from their individual cable networks and directing investment toward their streaming services. However, most streaming services are hemorrhaging cash. Cable, though, is getting smaller, remains profitable, and now some industry insiders and analysts are questioning whether executives shifted too quickly and are limiting future revenue from distributors and advertisers. Unfortunately, they're killing the golden goose. This demise was inevitable. But by putting more and more content in streaming, there's literally nothing on cable. In 2015, there were at least 214 original scripted programs on premium and basic cable, according to programming records analyzed by the New York Times. By last year, the figure had fallen 39%, and it has fallen even more this year. Partly, perhaps because of the months-long strike by the Writers and Actors Guild. In 2015, TBS and TNT aired 17 scripted shows. This year, it has a total of three series, according to the records. Cable networks like Comedy Central, Freeform, A&E, History, MTV, and Lifetime also air far fewer scripted programs. Reruns are filling the hole. Cable executives say they have made programming moves that fit better in a diminished cable landscape and, in many cases, cost much less to produce. Cable channels have moved investment from scripted programming towards unscripted programming, library rights, and sports. But more common are the lineups at channels 
where programming comes largely in the form of reality shows. It's quite a departure from the upbeat procedural programming that once defined the networks. As cord-cutting accelerated in recent years, advertisers mostly stuck with the cable networks. But last year was, was finally a tipping point when advertisers began to look elsewhere at non-sports cable programming. Cable advertising revenue has decreased by double-digit percentages for five consecutive financial quarters. Advertisers are starting to realize that there's really nothing on here and they shouldn't pay for it. The tomato lost in space has been found. At the International Space Station, tomatoes were grown without soil using hydroponic techniques to demonstrate space agricultural methods. Perhaps nowhere in the universe is a fresh, ripe tomato more valuable than on the International Space Station, where astronauts live for months at a time, subsisting mainly on prepackaged, shelf-staple foods. That's why astronaut Frank Rubio became the central figure in a light-hearted whodunit that has taken months to solve. Astronaut Frank Rubio had set the U.S. record for the longest trip in space. After Rubio harvested one of the first tomatoes ever grown in space earlier this year, according to the astronaut, he admitted he misplaced it, he said. I put it in a little bag, and one of my crewmates was doing a public event with some school kids, and I thought it would be kind of cool to show the kids, hey guys, this is the first tomato harvested in space, Rubio said during an October media event. I was pretty confident that I Velcroed it where I was supposed to Velcro it, and then I came back and it was gone. In the microgravity environment of space, anything not anchored to a wall is at risk of floating away, destined to spend eternity hidden behind a nook or cranny within the football field-sized orbiting laboratory and its Lombrianthin passageways. Rubio said he probably spent 8 to 20 hours of his own free time just searching for that tomato. And I wanted to find it mostly so I could prove like I did not eat the tomato, but he never found it. Rubio returned to Earth on September the 27th with a precious produce still lost aboard the space station. It remained lost until now. At a Wednesday news conference last week, members of the seven-person crew remaining on the space station revealed they have finally located the tomato. Rubio had been blamed for quite a while for eating the tomato. NASA astronaut Jasmine Mogbali said we can exonerate him. However, the astronauts did not reveal where the tomato was or specify what state the produce was when found. Rubio surmised in October that it had probably already shriveled into an unrecognizable rot. Due to the humidity at the space station, it probably desiccated to the point where you couldn't tell what it was, Rubio said. Well, case closed. Rubio's return to Earth in September was a historic moment. His stay on the space station, which lasted more than a year, set a record for the longest U.S. astronaut has ever spent in microgravity. Rubio originally expected to spend only six months aboard the International Space Station. Instead, he logged 371 days following the discovery of a coolant leak coming from his original ride, a Russian Soyuz spacecraft, while it was docked to the orbiting outpost.
Consumer Reports says EVs, that's electric vehicles, have 79% more reliability problems than gas cars. The perception is electric vehicles are easier to maintain than those with internal combustion powertrains. It seems intuitive. EVs have many fewer moving parts than cars that have to detonate small quantities of hydrocarbon fuel thousands of times a minute. But the data don't really bear out the idea according to data collected by consumers' reports. EVs are significantly less reliable than conventionally powered cars. Consumers' report is known for buying cars for its own test fleet, but for its annual auto reliability survey, the organization cast a wider net. Specifically, it gathered data from 330,000 owners of vehicles from model year 2000 onwards, and it uses that survey data to generate reliability scores for each vehicle and model year. The results are a little inconvenient for the EV evangelists. EVs had 79% more reliability problems than a gasoline or diesel-powered vehicle. On average, plug-in hybrids fared even worse. These had 146% more issues on average than the conventional alternative. But simpler, not plug-in hybrids bucked this trend with 26% fewer reliability problems than conventionally powered vehicles. PHEVs, which are the plug hybrid EVs, also had the greatest number of potential trouble areas. A conventionally powered car, truck, or SUV has 17 main problem areas, according to a consumer's report, including minor stuff like trim rattling and more significant areas like the engine or transmission. PHEVs have all these plus electric motors, a high-voltage traction battery, and charging to contend with. Hybrids have 19 potential problem areas, or the above minus the charging problem, and EV have just 12 since they go without things like internal combustion engines, fueling systems, or transmissions. Yes, if you want to be very pedantic about it, you could point out that the Porsche, Taycan, and the Audi e-tron GT have two-speed transmission, but no one would be impressed. Electric motors, charging, and battery problems make up most of the EV reliability complaints, and those are charging problems with the car, not with the home or public charging hardware. The relative rawness of most EVs on sale is a big factor in this, and Consumers Report had some good advice. For potential EV buyers, do not get seduced by that launch edition vehicle. EVs are still in their relative infancy as mainstream vehicles, so it's really not surprising that manufacturers, by and large, are still working out the kinks. That said, we are seeing signs of movement in the right direction, and our data has consistently shown reliability-minded consumers would be best served by foregoing brand new vehicles in their first model year. Hybrids continue to surpass EVs vehicles for reliability, even though hybrids are more complex with gas power engines supplemented by an electric drive system. This is because hybrid technology is now over 25 years old and is offered mainly 
from the most reliable automakers. At first, consumers report data looks like it's in conflict with one of its early reports. In 2020, its data showed that EVs and PHEVs had lifetime maintenance costs that were about twice as cheap as for internal combustion-powered vehicle. But it is noted that the earlier study was looking at cost rather than reliability. Since the EVs and PHEVs were mostly under warranty, and EV powertrain warranties are typically much longer than regular powertrain warranties, many repairs did not cost the owners. By the way, these reliability problems affect different manufacturers in different ways. So, if you're thinking of an electric vehicle, according to a consumer's report, they're not quite ready for prime time. Microsoft is changing the way it updates Windows. Microsoft is weary of fragmenting the Windows user base too much. Windows 12 may not be happening after all, or at least that seems to be the way the rumor mill is spinning. And Microsoft is also changing how it'll update its desktop operating systems in the future. This info comes from Zach Bowden of Windows Central, who is a well-known leaker on all things Microsoft. Bowden tells us that the next version of Windows, codenamed Hudson Valley, will be a highly AI-focused, and Microsoft is planning to launch it in September or October of next year. But the final name is a marketing decision that hasn't yet been made. He claims that sources inside Microsoft are doubtful as to whether it will be Windows 12. The reason? Microsoft is apparently weary of fragmenting the user base further with another release that has a different name. And we totally get where that line of thought is coming from. This doesn't rule out Windows 12, of course, but it certainly sounds like Microsoft is edging towards sticking with another release of Windows 11 for the next incarnation. Sources inside Microsoft have indicated that there will be a return to a big annual feature update with fewer moment or smaller feature updates. Currently, we're getting a raft of moment updates. We're up to moment four this year with a fifth plan for February or March next year and an annual upgrade 23H2 this year, which was somewhat smaller in terms of its feature count as lots of features had been introduced with those moment updates already. Next year, with fewer moments updates, we're told that these will still exist, but will be used sparingly. The big upgrade for later in 2024, that's Hudson Valley, will be, well, a much bigger affair, and in short, Microsoft is putting more emphasis on the major annual update going forward, or at least that's the theory. So if Microsoft goes the route of making Hudson Valley an all-new release called Windows 12 or another alternative, Windows AI, what's the danger of fragmentation referred to here? Well, if Windows 12 came out next year and we have a bunch of users leaping to that operating system, a bunch will stay on Windows 11 and a whole lot of users still running Windows 10 because they're stuck behind a hardware upgrade barrier and in many cases, either because they don't have TPM functionality on their PC or their CPU is too old. 
This would be diluting the user base over three operating systems instead of two, if you will, which does feel like a clumsy approach, and serving all this will end up a harder-to-manage process. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we talk about computers, the workplace, and so many of the things that are going on there. One of the things that I've encountered over my years that I wish to disabuse any employers, any any managers, any CIOs, CEOs. I want to abuse everybody, disabuse everybody of the this whole idea that IT is there as the hero. IT is there to to be our our rescuer, our get out of jail free card, our different whatever euphemism you want to use. For any of the business mistakes that come along, any of the different disasters that come along, I have—I don't have to worry about planning out an IT strategy. We, we've got our IT guy over there, and he's going to fix anything. I'm going to be the business owner. I know what is good for our business. I'm going to ignore the IT guy who says we need to do X, Y, and Z. And I will tell you, that's a very poor approach. IT has, over the course of many years, built themselves into the workplace. We know today that information technology is not an expense on the company. What it is, is it's a competitive resource where if you have a better IT department, if you have better IT people, if you have better information technology resources and different ways you are leveraging all of the computers and bits and bytes and data and everything else, that it's going to get you further ahead than your competitors. In the 1950s, you looked for ways to improve your company. And you would put star performers up and you would do various things. And even today, across so many different companies, I see on a regular basis, oh, that's just a nerd. No, go sit down with that nerd. Spend, spend a matter of one hour a week with that nerd. Do not correct him. Do not argue with him. Go to that nerd and say, how can I improve what we're doing with computers? How can I improve the company through technology? How can I make things better? They are knowledgeable and they are a resource. And the first time you ask them this, they're going to be shocked. They're, they're going to be dumbfounded. They're going to be thrown off because a lot of business owners don't do this. You need to be finding out, and I don't care where you are in the entire chain. You're a receptionist. Ask the nerd how you can expedite X, Y, or Z, how you can make things better with your knowledge and your usage of computers. Just say, give, give me half an hour of your time, and I want you to look at whatever they do. And maybe, maybe you're going to doubt it, 
Maybe you're going to struggle with that idea, but I want you to struggle with that idea. And they may be wrong. Those nerds have not sat in your seat, but they may be wrong one time. They may be wrong a couple of times, but for the most part, they will have ideas that will work or ideas that will spark new ideas in your brain. Or they will come up with something that is absolutely amazing. It may not it may not be fully fleshed out. It may not be perfect in the delivery that they gave to you. <laughs> They're nerds. They're awkward. I say this coming to you as a nerd, saying, yes, I know, at times I can be awkward. If you think they've got something, but you don't know quite how to do it, say, hey, Next time we talk, I want you to tell that to me in a different way. Tell that to me like you would tell a 10-year-old. And maybe they'll come up with a different way of explaining it to you. Don't, don't demand that on the spot. Don't demand that they explain or re-explain or whatever on the spot. But I want you to leverage technology the best you can. They can, those nerds, us nerds, we can save you money. We can make you more productive. We can make employees more productive. We can help you with ideas on attracting more business. Information technology is not your, it's not your business plan, but it supports your business plan. It's it's not your business recovery plan, but it supports your business recovery plan. You need to listen to them. You need to ask, how can we improve our IT infrastructure? How can we improve our business today through the IT infrastructure? How can we plan for the future? How can we be more nimble? How can we adapt to the coming things of AI, of of data manipulation and data extraction and all of this. Look for ways to improve the company through the nerd who sits there. I know it's it, it, he may be awkward. She may be just absolutely weird, whatever it is, but they have a passion and they have this drive that needs to be leveraged. And I will tell you, I know so many nerds out there where that drive is not being leveraged, where they are not talking to the nerds and they're not making their business any better, where the nerds are having to fight for, I saw this really big idea. All right, never mind. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Controversy surrounds... Google's Gemini AI demo. It has been revealed that Google modified interactions with Gemini in numerous ways in order to create the demonstration. The demo video for Gemini has faced scrutiny and criticism for being edited and not reflecting the true capability of the AI model. This has raised questions about the accuracy and authenticity of the demo. Google Gemini AI is a powerful artificial intelligence model developed by Google. It is a set of large language models, that's LLMS, that leverage training, 
techniques taken from AlphaGo, including reinforcement learning and tree search. Gemini is designed to understand not just text, but also images, videos, audio, and code, making it a multimodal model capable of completing complex tasks in various domains, such as math, physics, and programming. Gemini is still in training and is being fine-tuned and rigorously tested for safety. Gemini is part of Google's effort to make AI more helpful for everyone. It was created to be highly efficient at tool and API integrations and built to enable future innovations such as memory and planning. While still in its early stages, Gemini has already demonstrated impressive multimodal capabilities not seen in prior models. Gemini is expected to be available at various sizes and capabilities similar to Google's PALM2 model. It is currently integrated with Google Bard and Google Pixel 8 and will gradually be incorporated into other Google services. Developers and enterprise customers will be able to access Gemini Pro via the Gemini API in Google's AI Studio and Google Cloud Vertex AI starting on, well, sometime in mid-December. Android developers will have access to Gemini Nano via AI Core on an early preview basis. Gemini is seen as a serious competitor to other generative AI solutions, such as OpenAI's ChatGPT, with its multimodal capabilities and training techniques. Gemini has the potential to unseat ChatGPT as the most dominant generative AI solution on the planet. Earlier this week, the tech giant announced Gemini, its most capable AI model to date, to much fanfare, and in one of a series of videos, Google showed off the mid-level range of the model, dubbed Gemini Pro, by demonstrating how it could recognize a series of illustrations of a duck, describing the changes a drawing went through at a conversational place. In its own description of the video, Google admitted that for the purposes of this demo, latency has been reduced, and Gemini outputs had been shortened for brevity. The video footage itself is also appended with the phrase, sequences shortened throughout. In other words, Google misrepresented the speed at which Gemini Pro can recognize a series of images, indicating we still don't know what the model is actually capable of. In the video, wowed observers by using its multimodal thinking chops to recognize illustrations at what appears to be a drop of a hat. The video, as it was suggested, also offers us glimmers of the reasoning abilities that Google's DeepMind AI lab have cultivated over the years. That's indeed impressive, considering any form of reasoning has quickly become the next holy grail in the AI industry, causing intense interest in models like OpenAI's rumored Q-Star. In reality, the demo wasn't just significantly sped up to make it seem more impressive, but Gemini Pro is likely still stuck with the same old capabilities that we've already seen many times before. I think these capabilities are not as novel as people think, 
Wharton professor Ethan Mollick tweeted, showing how ChatGPT was effortlessly able to identify the simple drawings of a duck in a series of screenshots. Did Google actively try to deceive the public by speeding up the footage? In a statement to Bloomberg Opinion, a Google spokesperson said it was made by using still image frames from the footage and prompting via text. In other words, Gemini was likely given plenty of time to analyze the images and its output may have been overlaid over video footage, giving the impression that it was much more capable than it really was. The video illustrates what the multi-mode user experiences built with Gemini could look like, said the Vice President of Research and Deep Learning at Google's DeepMind. Emphasis on could. Perhaps Google should have opted to show the actual capabilities of the Gemini AI instead. It's not even the first time Google has royally screwed the launch of an AI model. Earlier this year, when the company announced its ChatGPT competitor, a demo infamously showed Bard making a blatantly false statement, claiming that NASA's James Webb Space Telescope took the first image of an exoplanet. As such, Google's latest gaffe certainly doesn't bode well. The company came out swinging this week, claiming that an even more capable version of its latest model called Gemini Ultra was able to outsmart OpenAI's GPT-4 in a test of intelligence. Well, they claim it, we got to see it, and without any manual intervention to make it look faster. Apple still holds back Android's Find My Device network. Back in May of this year, Google announced that it would launch the Find My Device network for Android, which would allow for AirTag-like tracking on Android devices. But over the summer, Google announced that it would delay the Find My Device network until Apple implemented tracking protection in iOS. Google is still leaving Android users at the mercy of Apple. The Find My Device network, whenever it debuts, will use millions of Android phones, regardless of manufacturer, to help pinpoint the location of a tracker, lost headphones, and more. While Apple's network is very strong in the U.S. market, Google's Android-based network would immediately outrank Apple's on a global scale as Android devices are far more widely used internationally. That's why the launch was so exciting and Google even had hardware on board immediately. In May, a few key partners signed up with Google for Google's Find My Device Network, including Tile, Pebble Bee, and Chipolo. All three brands were set to offer AirTag-like trackers that tapped into Google's network, and there have been persistent rumors of Google releasing a first-party tracker too. But back in July, Google announced that it would delay the launch of the Find My Device network and gave a specific reason for that. Google would hold off until Apple had implemented tracking protection into iOS for trackers using the Android-based network. Google is not launching the Find My Device network until Apple has implemented protections for iOS. By making sure iPhone owners can find FMD-compatible trackers, this should hopefully reduce and help prevent the Google network from being used to track Apple devices 
without awareness from their owners. Objectively, this is the right decision. Apple was hit with major criticism following the launch of the AirTag that the tags could be used for and ultimately are often used for tracking individuals without their knowledge. That was especially bad for Android users as Apple's device at launch gave an Android user absolutely no way to know if a tracker was on their person. That eventually changed, and in July, Google and Apple launched unknown tracker alerts on Android, which would be able to detect an AirTag, no separate app needed. That system is based on a new industry specification and eventually should be able to detect trackers from other networks, including Samsung's SmartThings Find Network for the Galaxy SmartTag series, as well as third-party options from Chipolo, Tile, and others. Google did mention that the new spec would be finalized by the end of 2023, which is really right now. But even then, in the months since that announcement, it's all been silent, and that silence is only getting more frustrating. Apple hasn't implemented tracker detection in iOS outside of protection for its own AirTag. And as far as has been said publicly, there's no word on when that will change since the spec isn't finalized. Given that Apple's updates are usually structured around big updates, that could mean we're still months more to wait if Apple doesn't implement this change in a minor iOS update. As a result, Android users are still just waiting. Pre-orders of the Chipolo and Pebble B trackers that were specific to Google's network are still on delay, and users are stuck settling for third-party networks that aren't as widely supported, especially now as Apple's Find My Network has been adopted by many third-party brands. Samsung's SmartThings Find Network and the revamped Galaxy SmartTag 2 are currently among the best options for Android users, but the whole system is still restricted solely to Samsung devices. As Samsung is a top-selling smartphone brand in the world, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it makes the tracking far less capable than a more open network that encompasses all Android devices. Really, it's just a rough situation with Apple, and the timing couldn't be any worse. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston and I have been talking about different ideas for items to get as gifts or give as gifts for the workplace or the com- you know, professional computer nerd or anything like that. Uh, Marty, you've got a few of these lined up. Oh, I try to save the good stuff for the IT guys, right? Yes, of course. Uh, how about a gift of connectivity? Okay. Like many people in anybody's life. It was time to replace our old Wi-Fi 5 mesh network Mm -hmm. with something faster and stronger. We had Linksys send a Velop Pro 6E micro mesh Mm -hmm. Wi-Fi 3 node kit. It's their model MX6203. Any node can connect up to 200 devices. Each node also has a wired Ethernet port. So two of the three can work as wireless bridges. The old Wi-Fi 5 was a two-band mesh that ran on 2.4 and 5 gigahertz. Add a 6 gigahertz band to the mix for this one. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
and links this add some finesse in figuring out how and where to steer coverage. They call it you're going to love this term, cognitive mesh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> sure. All right. I, I, I think I saw it's that. It's a marketing term. <laughs> uh, I think I saw that on the cafeteria menu. Uh, oh. <laughs> cognitive mesh. Ooh. Well, we spread the coverage footprint of it by locating the second and third notes farther north and south than the old ones and got better signal strength and higher speed across most of the house and some of the yard to reach okay. our Wi-Fi weather stations and security cameras. If that sounds tempting, the Linksys Vela Pro 6E three-node micro-mesh kit is about 400 bucks online. I'm going to tell you, this, this, uh, the specs that I'm seeing on this, this is going to really lock in well for people who are small office, home office kind of stuff. Oh, uh, because, absolutely. you know, we're talking yeah. about that higher speed. We're talking about 200 devices. This is, this is a nice uh, crossover point uh, for, for anybody in that range. And if you're sharing online work at home duties, with yes, somebody yes. with somebody streaming TV on a couple of sets. <laughs> there you go, sure. You're going to need what this does. All right, so what's the next one you've got in line here? Well, the, the communications is important, but how fast can you enter data? Now, sometimes mm -hmm. a rack houses gear that you need a keyboard to use, but racks are only 19 inches wide. Yeah, yeah. And rack drawers even less. Mm-hmm. And so it first got me interested in compact keyboards these okay. days. Yeah. Having a keyboard only two thirds as wide as a standard 102 key layout makes sense when I want to fit it into a shoulder bag to travel with my notebook or hide behind the couch when I want to use it with a tablet or my yes, phone. Yes, yes, yes. So at my request, Rock Hat sent their Vulcan 2 Mini Air Optical Mechanical Keyboard. Okay. Yes. It has a 2.4 gigahertz dongle, but even handier, a pick among three Bluetooth 5.1 connections. Okay. I use number three for my PC, number one for my phone, and on the phone, I'm warp speed faster than on the <laughs> keyboard than I am the thumb yes, hand, you know? Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, the keys, I, I've done that before. <laughs> the keys, and you may hear Ben panting as I describe this because yes. he's something of a keystroke nut. Yeah. Full travel linear with no detent. Okay. The unmistakable click of a mechanical key and the mm -hmm. unmistakable responsiveness of optical activation backed by a decent processor and memory. Okay. There's proximity detection, so the keyboard backlights dim when you go away or you can turn everything off. With oh, okay. Now, for gamers, which we don't do doing IT guys, do we? The keyboard can interact with your choice of games and do macros. It, it, so, so a lot of the mechanical keyboards are moving into that recog the recognition that the gamers don't buy the $15 keyboards. The mechanical yeah, keyboards know. don't run in that range either. Oh, no, they, they uh, don't. So it, this one, the Rockat Vulcan yeah, 2 Mini yeah. Air Wireless Compact Keyboard is about $180 at Rockat, R-O-C-C-A-T dot com. Yeah, and that's right in line. That is, that is a, that's a, a good price for that. that again, that's, that's going to be a solid keyboard. And now, since high speed yeah. makes things go smoother, we've got one more for you. Mm -hmm. this, this is a new product. It once stood for Radio Corporation of America, and RCA <laughs> was a solid brand in early television sets. Yes. 
But this gift is very much about today and the kids of all ages who love gaming, not that it isn't great in more traditional roles. Mm -hmm. The new mm -hmm. RCA Evolution M series gaming monitors. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. 27-inch displays with 2560 by 1440p QHD resolution. I got the standard model with 165 hertz refresh rate. There's also a premium model with a 240 hertz refresh rate. Mm -hmm, yeah. I haven't yet seen a video source that can outrun either one. It has two HDMI and two DisplayPort inputs. The specs are impressive and the pricing is decent. The standard model, about 300 bucks. And the premium model, about $430 at rcamonitors.com. Now, those higher speed monitors are really, really good for the workplace. People don't realize, you know, the flicker that comes off of even what may seem like it's flicker free. Oh, scrolling There's, type and web animation. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. All of this it stutters. Start, yeah. yeah, yeah. All of this stuff really starts to mount up. So, so getting yourself, um, you know, if you're working at home, you you get like minor headaches at the end of the day. Think about upgrading your monitor. This is this is a really key approach too. Look for, look for that that you know that 240 hertz or uh, in that range the the higher numbers. And while you're at it, if that gives you a problem, check your cables. There's that one too, Marty. Did we hit everything on the list? Now, a couple of things about holiday shopping that I want to yeah. mention. Yes. We haven't we haven't gone into toys very much. Yeah, <laughs> thank goodness. But no one with kids is immune from it. So let me mention that the peak day every year when the most batteries get bought is December 26th, the day after Christmas. <laughs> yes, yes. People who buy toys for their kids generally buy a second set of batteries for the toys if, if they're thinking ahead a, a little and take the bulk pricing on the batteries they can get. But kids are going to go through those two sets on the first day yeah, and you're going to yeah. you then then maybe three or four sets depending on the toy and the kids. Uh, buy in bulk. Go to the next available quantity that gets you the lower price per battery. Yes, yes, and, definitely. And make make note before you gift wrap of how many of what kind of battery the gift takes. Yeah, or even better yet, preload the uh, preload them in. Uh, I also want to mention if you think it's time to upgrade your computer or your TV set or your internet or anything else. It might be, or it might be as simple as having a cable that isn't quite up the tasks you've been feeding it these days. Don't wholesale change every cable in the house. Check the closest link to the source. Mm -hmm. Get mm -hmm. one better cable to try there, and if that starts working better, then you start migrating outward. Yes, yes, yes. Those Cables are, are one of the most expensive things per foot that you buy in computing. But mm -hmm. some sometimes they help justify all of the endpoint money you've spent. Yes, yes, definitely. Not that anybody wants to get a USB cable for uh, in in their stocking. It's not where <laughs> not where it needs to go. Yes, we got you all kinds of presents in your stocking. We we just gave you a charging cable. <laughs> Why not? I, I also it, want to mention yeah. with, with all with all the stuff people are carrying. Yeah, pockets and pouches. Yes, yes. The, the, the clothes that you wear, the clothes that you're buying, the clothes that you're getting, or the clothes you, you spend your money on after the holidays, 
need to accommodate what's really part of your life. That doesn't mean you load it up with little toys and things, adult or kid. It, it means you take advantage of the opportunity to rematch your life with the elements of it. Definitely. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The Brookdale Computer Users Group meets Thursday, December the 14th. Meeting time, 7 p.m., online virtual meeting, and their website is bcug.com. The New York Amateur Computer Club will meet Thursday, December the 14th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website of the club is nyacc.org. Tech Ed Connect, Thursday, January the 4th, 2024. They'll be kicking off the new year at 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom. Their website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, January the 5th of the new year at 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi, and their website is acgnj.org. The King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, January the 9th, 2024, at 7 p.m., and they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. Phone number to confirm is 347-278-7320. And the Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, January the 12th, 2024, at 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is limac.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN, live streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy till we meet again, same time, same station, next week.